Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 7 of the podcast. Today, I want to ask a provocative question. Should we be inspired by the masters, or should we subvert them? Well, you probably already know my answer to that question, even though we're only a few episodes into this podcast. But to answer it properly, I'm returning to the world of Christopher Rocchio's The Sun Eater series to share my initial reactions to the series when I read the first book in 2019. What you will hear today was a YouTube Live that I did for some of my readers in 2019. And so you will hear me read occasional comments and questions and answer them, but most of the questions are to the point, so I decided to leave them in the audio. Basically, in a nutshell, this is my epic rant on why The Last Jedi is an embarrassing piece of trash that should never have been made. But we get into so much more. Gene Wolfe, the idea of far future sci-fi becoming a kind of inverted fairy tale, and why Star Wars is actually fantasy, not sci-fi, or at least the original trilogy was. I hope you enjoy this blast from the past. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me and keep me creating, even when I really don't feel like it. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for only $2 a month and get access to early live streamed recordings, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. The community also has higher tiers that include things like free ebooks, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. I also occasionally give special gifts to my patrons, including recently a few free audiobook codes for the complete Raven Sun epic fantasy series in audiobook. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. And now, on to today's show. It's been quite a week um, for me. Uh, end of December. Um, lots of things going on, as I'm sure is true for all of you. But somehow, out of I don't know how... Um, Monday was, I had a particularly disappointing day uh, for a variety of reasons. I'm not going to get into them here because they have nothing to do with, with the creative life. Not really, but I decided that it was high time that I went and took my wife to see the rise of Skywalker. My wife and I went and saw the last Jedi when it came out pretty much on the first weekend of it. And well, (laughs) how do I say this? So I, throughout the entire movie, I was watching with mouth agape thinking, what in heaven's name, am I watching? Now, for a little bit of context, um, I am a Star Wars fanatic. I love Star Wars. I've, I read the young Han Solo novels when I was like 10. Um, didn't get much farther than that in terms of the, uh, the canons, the, the canonical stuff in the novels. I've tried some of the Thrawn, the Admiral Thrawn stuff, but I, didn't, I couldn't really get into it. I think some of the later stuff is better than the early stuff, so I probably should just plunge through it. But the, you know, the early uh, trilogy is... Yeah, amongst the top viewing experiences 
of my life. Certainly, I remember the first time I saw Star Wars, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was like all of the fairy tales I had grown up with suddenly had come alive in this far future, which was also a deep past uh, setting that was simultaneously fairy tale and sci fi. It was just perfect. It was exactly what I loved. And I was not one of those that appreciated the prequels. I was not happy with them by and large, but not because of the storyline so much as because of the bad acting. And um, I just really didn't like Hayden Christensen, not as a, not as a person. I'm sure he's a lovely person. He's a terrible actor, just not good for the role. And, but at the same time, the, the uh, last Jedi, not the last Jedi, the, um, what was it? The last one in the, in the prequels. Uh, I actually enjoyed it. I, I took my mom to see it when it first came out. Both of us really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was dark. It, it was a little bit, you know, crazy, a little bit odd, but I really enjoyed it. Sorry, give me a second to close the door. So I was one of those people that was waiting with bated breath to see uh, The Force Awakens. Um, this was going to be a big highlight for, for us, for my family, for me in particular. So when I saw it, I was like, wait a minute. When did copying frame by frame movies that had come out 30 years ago, when did that become a good artistic choice? And J.J. Abrams, what are you doing? I think you're a little bit more capable of doing something pretty good. Um, but why are you just copying a new hope? What's going on? And Starkiller Base? I mean, I came up with better names when I was 10 and I wrote The Duels of Space. If Misha Perikirostov is here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, ridiculous. Can you please try at least to have a little bit of originality in your in your story? What's going on? So The Last Jedi, I had high hopes, all right? I think a lot of us did. And when I was reading the um, when I was reading the uh, reviews of The Last Jedi, I was like, okay, all the critics love it. This is going to be really exciting. Um, let's, you know, let's, let's get going with this, guys. And then that first scene, I mean, like the setup scene in The Last Jedi, when she comes to that, that island, which is an Orthodox monastery, by the way, right? You know that, right? And we see, finally, Luke Skywalker. And we think this is going to be this great moment of, of you know, future apprentice to future master. And they're going to have this wonderful bond. And then the first scene, he chucks the thing over his shoulder. And this is right after a series of yo mama jokes happening in, in the middle of a battle between the, as Stephen Gray Dane has called it, the Shmebellion fighting against the uh, Shempire or Shmebire or whatever you the great Dan is a wonderful um, movie reviewer. He's got a website called decentfilms.com. Highly recommended. But he he put it he described it exactly well. If you're going to choose to make a subversive version of Star Wars, if you're going to take all of the tropes, all of the classical kind of storytelling structure stuff, and then you're going to turn it on its head, that's a valid artistic choice. I have no problem with that as a as a choice that you can make as a director but if you're going to do that you better make what you're doing pretty darn good except what ryan johnson did with the last jedi was just subversion okay it was enough in his mind to do nothing more than take every single trope of a star wars which has always been traditionally about the hero's journey always about the the traditional tropes and steps of the hero's journey of the of the fairy tale structure Instead of actually taking those, twisting them in an interesting way and saying something new about a very age-old way of telling stories, 
Instead of that, he just took all of it, flipped it over its head and said, ha ha, got you. Um, what am I thinking of specifically? Okay, so the burning down of the of the sacred tree with all of the sacred books inside it, how much more ridiculous can you get when Yoda, who is the keeper of everything, has decided that the best thing we can do going forward is just to burn everything and start from scratch. There's plenty of really good uh, videos on YouTube um, deconstructing the idiocy that is Last Jedi. Basically, what I really hated about it what I really, really disliked about it is that if you're going to choose, make that as an artistic choice, and I'm okay with it, and I'll explain why later, you you still you can't stop at basically taking everything that everybody has expected, flipping it on its head, and then laughing at the audience saying, "I did something different." Ha ha! Deal with it. Okay. If you're going to flip everything, everybody's expectations on their head, you have to offer something that's fresh. You have to offer something that's a little bit new. You have to uh, you have to offer something that's not merely unexpected for its shock value, but unexpected because of its good storytelling qualities. There was, an, there was an entire subplot in The Last Jedi that had nothing to do with the plot of the story. We could safely take out the entire gambling thing where they're looking for the guy with the code played by Benicio Del Toro. I can't even remember what that's about because literally everything that happens there has no bearing whatsoever on the final analysis on the end of the plot in the last jedi nothing it's like why did we have this entire sequence only to show that there's slavery in the world congratulations you've just forced a solitary and very unwilling tear to come down my face good job and then what did ryan johnson do at the end of the last jedi he laughed at everybody's expectations of star wars he made fun of all the tropes and then he set them up with this dilemma right where he's expecting um, where the, the new rebellion, the Shmebellion, is expecting all these free people to come to their defense on the salt planet, right? And then nobody comes. And you're supposed to go, oh, deep, right? Except there's a problem. Because what's happened is the Shmebellion has like four and a half people on a str- stranded on the planet, and there's nowhere to go because there's no story, because they have no alliance anymore. There's no rebellion. They're done. They're finished. So where do we go from here? So literally what happens in the next movie is that the first hour is spent by J.J. Abrams undoing The Last Jedi. I couldn't believe what I was saying. And of course, it didn't, didn't make me unhappy. I was perfectly okay with that because um, I didn't like The Last Jedi. So if you're going to do everything you possibly can in your power to undo the mistakes of The Last Jedi, I mean, go so far as to actually having Luke looking Ray directly in the eye this is not a spoiler at all, by the way, those of you who are watching who are worried about spoilers. Um, this is basically saying I was wrong, meaning the entire plot of it was wrong, of, of The Last Jedi was wrong. And then Kylo Ren backtrack, backtracks on his, his saying that Ray has no, Ray's parents are of no uh, importance. They're just a bunch of nobodies. He backtracks on that. Basically, the, everything in The Last Jedi is, is effectively removed and canceled and annulled um at the very beginning at, uh, of, of the rise of skywalker which i think is the right thing to do the problem is how do you make a third movie in a series of three when the first two movies have effectively been made moot because everything that was set up in book in movie number one was didn't happen in movie number two. In fact, all the threads, all the story threads that happened in book one were just cut off in movie one, were cut off in movie number two. Okay, great. <laughs> so where do we go in movie number three? Well, we have to start from scratch. So they start, they make the entire first half of the movie a setup 
for a brand new story that has no real reference at all to, to movies one or two. And they had no other choice. Abrams had no other choice because he was left with absolutely nowhere to go. It's absolutely insane. Misha uh, Piekosov says, Mark Skytraveler in Duels of Space. Misha, do you remember Duels of Space? Oh, my goodness. Yes, that was the, the funniest thing ever. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so I was sitting there in the movie theater with my wife, and my wife, who had actually liked The Last Jedi, who doesn't do story analysis when she's watching movies, thank goodness, um, at least one of us can actually sit there and enjoy movies. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, she sits next to me and she starts pulling out her phone. She goes, this is boring. I can't stand how, how silly this is. So both of us were in the middle of this two and a half hour movie. Going, oh gosh, where is this going? However, I am pleased to say that the movie ends in a way that I didn't expect in a way that actually almost redeems the entire movie completely. So, um, Janice, um, if you're listening, I'm not going to give you any spoilers right now. I'm only going to give some very basic sort of thematic things that maybe you'll actually even, um, maybe you might actually find it useful and enjoyable when you actually watch the movie. So Star Wars has always, has always been about, um, about philosophy, about much more than simple escapism. There's a reason it follows there's a reason there's all this kind of airy fairy stuff with metachlorians and the force going on. It's, it's hark it's hearkening towards something metaphysical, right? It's about, it's a, it's a, uh, a telling of the hero's journey that involves more than meets the eye. This is star Wars. It is what it is, right? I mean, it can be mumbo jumbo. It can be whatever you like, but it's, it's still, it's, it is what it is. So you expect a little bit of that, but when star Wars seems to actually grasp and go towards a resolution at the end of book of movie three that is reminiscent of Tolkien's ideas about you catastrophe. Then I start perking up. All right. Now I'm not going to say exactly what happens, but Christian imagery weirdly and unexpectedly in a star Wars movie and the possibility of one's fulfillment being found, not merely in an amorphous and, abstract other or universe but in the wisdom and experience of your forebears of your ancestors or more than that not just your ancestors but the ones who were able to live the life properly before you what i'm talking about is the intercession of the saints get this guys star wars hints in a plot point at something like the intercession of the saints I couldn't believe what I was watching. And but my wife was like, wait a minute, did that just happen? Did that just happen? I'm like, yeah, Star Wars just got theological and not in a bad way at all. In a way that actually almost redeems the entire structure of the entire movie. Uh, my wife is, is coming in, listening in on, <laughs> on this rant about Star Wars. And she will she will support me in this. Suddenly the end was more than than the sum of its parts. And let me tell you, when I came out of the Last Jedi, I was disgusted with the world. Uh, I wanted nothing to do with Star Wars. And I wasn't even sure if I would ever watch another Star Wars movie again. And when I watched Solo on um, Netflix, effectively for free, it just confirmed my, my opinion of the direction the Disney Star Wars is going. But then after I watched The, the Mandalorian, it's like, wait a minute. Okay. There is some hope, maybe that there's a direction here that they're going in. Maybe it's just they're just randomly shooting in a lot of different directions, hoping something sticks. I don't know. But 
I'm glad it's over. And I came out of the movie theater having uh, actually some sense of enjoyment, some sense of unexpected um, positive feelings. I, I thought I would come out there, you know, spitting and um, making the life of my wife a little bit um, difficult. But uh, no, we enjoyed it. Actually, it was fun. Way better than, than The Last Jedi. But that being said, let's be honest. Star Wars, the way it is now, is nothing like what it was before and it's missing something fresh it's missing something original it's missing something that i found not in star wars but in an entirely different place um seraphim says i've not seen mandalorian just baby yoda memes <laughs> it's too bad that so many people have seen baby yoda without seeing the mandalorian i saw it early enough not not to know who baby Yoda was and it was surprising and fresh and unexpected and I actually enjoyed it. So I'm afraid Seraphim that your experience of the Mandalorian might be um, permanently affected by baby Yoda memes, but I hope you'll give it a chance. I haven't seen the last episode of it. It's coming out tomorrow, but I'm hoping that, um, or is it today? What's, what's today? Is today Friday? Okay. You know what? I know what I'm doing after, after this. Okay. Then anyway, what I was <laughs> what I was saying is, yeah, there is a better, more wonderful series out there, and it's not yet in movie form. And I hope it will be. This is The Sun Eater by uh, by Christopher Rocchio. Now, this uh, book was introduced to me by a friend in DC who basically said, look, I have this book, the book series that I've read. I don't know. I like it a lot, but I'm not sure what to make of it. Maybe you can read it. And um, tell me if it's as good as I think it is. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm always up for, for a challenge. Um, Offworlder says last episode is out. Yes, I will watch it soon. I will enjoy it very much, I hope. Um, the, the second to last episode was getting, was getting really exciting. The structure, by the way, of Mandalorian deserves its own video. It is so good on story structure. Just all of the beats in the traditional perfect i mean in some ways john favreau is a hack and he just copies things over and over again but in some ways when he's given the freedom he can do some really really good stuff anybody seen chef fantastic loved it anyway back to the sun eater by christopher rocchio i hope i'm pronouncing that right so it's as many sci-fi or fantasy tinged sci-fi as this might be or fantasy books go nowadays they tend to be bloated in terms of the uh, page numbers and this thing's like 700 pages the first volume and the second volume is equally large if not even larger so initially i was like okay here we go <laughs> because more often than not nowadays that page count is not because there's actually something going on but because um the publishers have gotten people um uh, i guess conditioned to expect a large word count so there's a lot of kind of world building padding that goes on in these books that doesn't that isn't really streamlined storytelling and doesn't add much to the thrust of the narrative uh to the thrust of the narrative or to the story and more often than not i find it to be a little bit um distracting the comparison that a lot of people have been giving to by the way to the sun eater series is the name of the wind which i don't understand why that's that uh, comparison is is being raised name of the wind is classical sort of medieval fantasy, well, not quite medieval, sort of renaissance fantasy that goes on and on and on for pages with extremely florid language that doesn't really go anywhere, really. Um, well, 
the first book of the Sun Eater series by Christopher Rocchio, which is called The Empire of Silence, opens with a with a bang, not a whimper. And it's immediately reminiscent of a whole bunch of sci-fi classics that immediately puts you in mind of a certain kind of storytelling mode. Now, this is part of what I want to talk about today, about how The Last Jedi was purposely spitting on this familiarity of trope, while the rise of Skywalker was so slavishly um, sticking to trope that it forgot about the fact that you actually have to tell an original story. So what happens here in Christopher Rocchio's series is you're immediately thinking of Dune. It's a far future set series. There's uh, trade overtones. It's not spice, but it's uranium. There's a massive empire run uh, the, run by an, by an emperor with kind of, uh, well, not kind of, very Roman overtones. Now, the Roman overtones aren't so much Dune, but they immediately made me think of another series, and that's the... Um, the book of the new of the new sun series by Gene Wolfe. I don't know if Christopher actually read those books or not. Not not many people have, but in a lot of ways, the main character made me think of Severian, main character in the in the Earth series. Except this is a very different series. Although it evokes a lot of the similarity in terms of feel, in terms of a world building, in terms of setting to a lot of the classical um, sci-fi that that we really, that we've come to love, Dune. Um, and by the way, Battlestar Galactica, there's a definite Battlestar Galactica vibe to this. But it's not like Wolf. In Wolf series, it's basically how does Severian, who is a child born in the most corrupt possible arrangement of life you can you can possibly imagine. He's a torturer by trade, put into the guild since childhood, and taught in the art of excruciation from the time when he's small. So by the time he's an adult, he knows how to torture people for a living, and he does it to get paid. You can't possibly imagine a more low place to begin from, and yet the entire series is the exploration of him coming through that darkness to a kind of faint illumination where he becomes a Christ figure. Okay, Now, this seems to be the exact opposite. The, the um, Sun Eater series seems to be the fall and the, and the descent into Hades, not the rise from Hades into heaven. Now, you might think that I would immediately say, stop, this is terrible. How could we possibly read a series that does the inverse of what Wolf so beautifully did? Except it's really fascinating, the journey. Because the main character starts in what seems to be a very positive frame of mind. He's a noble man, a noble young man. He doesn't like violence. He doesn't like to fight. And through the vagaries of fate or something, except probably not fate. It might be Providence. We don't know. Um, he's thrown into a situation where he has to fight for his life. And he eventually falls from this position of having the luxury of being a virtuous, good nobleman to somebody who becomes quite dark. And book one, book one isn't, isn't ideal. The beginning, the first half of it or so is fantastic. It's fast paced. It's exciting. The characters, the character work is wonderful. The main character is compelling. He reminds us of Paul Atreides in his naivete. He also in, uh, reminds us of Severian in the fact that the narrator is actually the character a thousand years later. So he's got this world weariness to him. But the really great thing about this series is that the narrator is a character unto himself, even though he's not actually in the story. He's telling the story. And I love this kind of framing device if it's done well. 
because this character has lived for a thousand years and yes, gladi- gladiatorish. Very good, uh, Seraphim. There's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff about gladiators in there, and it's really good. It's it's not it's not simply derivative. I really like it. I think it's fantastic. Um, it, it's it does just enough to to keep you on the edge of your seat. But this main character, after the th- we know what's going to happen at the very beginning. He tells us what he's famous for, and what he's famous for is being the anti-Severian, Severian in in, in uh, Gene Wolfe's uh, New Earth series. He doesn't save the world. He destroys the world. And this isn't even spoilers. This is the first few pages. So I'm not even telling anything. So we're seeing this descent of this character into something like his own personal hell, where he is forced or he chooses, or we don't even know what, to, to actually commit genocide over an entire alien species. And to, to know that this is happening to a character who seems to be attracted to the strange and to the monstrous and to the alien and tr- tries to see the human in it is a fascinating thing. Because I think it's something that every single human being on some level has to go through. The fascination with the other and the the desire to see in the other something that is similar, something that is close, something that is human. It doesn't work. Or at least I'm not sure where it's going to go, actually. But in, in, the, in the first two books, it doesn't go well for the main character. His name is Hadrian. Um, and like I was saying, the main character in his world weariness makes these asides, these philosophical asides about the nature of existence, about the nature of storytelling, about the nature of life, the nature of memory. This character is compelling. He's a really interesting, old, world-weary, wizened guy who's retelling his own story. And I actually really think that the asides where he's sort of declaiming on the on the um, nature of existence and on the way, on on sort of the meaning of life, they're the best part of the book. It's something you don't see right nowadays in science fiction. You don't see science fiction tackling a lot of philosophical issues, except indirectly. This isn't true of short fiction. Much short science fiction deals with some really interesting um, ethical and moral dilemmas. But a lot of the really popular space opera, a lot of a lot of the stuff that that gets read about the most, kind of skirts over the top of it, or it assumes a completely um, materialistic utopian kind of 19th century utopian view on life that is very far away from from sort of my uh viewing of the world um so this was an unexpected and and pleasant um an unexpected and pleasant uh, change of pace in this book but like i said in the middle it kind of starts getting a little bit bogged down um in the the character is literally imprisoned on a planet and is unable to get off it. And we kind of start to feel his imprisonment a little bit too literally. We, we want to, the, um, the plot to start moving. And there's a love interest that I don't really get. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about the uh, main character's fascination for his love interest. Um, it's almost like she's an I- idealized version of womanhood. Um, that's that then the author tries to kind of make human and, sort of like the strong female that all men of our times are supposed to fall in love with. But there's not, I don't know, it's not really, just just not human enough for me. But that's just my own personal thing. Book two, though, my goodness, it's like we're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. It begins kind of formulaically. We're having space battles and kind of, you know, there's lightsabers and stuff. It's great. And suddenly we're dealing with suddenly we realize that what this is it what this is the second book is called howling dark it's a sci-fi slash yeah space fantasy version of dante's inferno and we encounter this character who's like the the gatekeeper to hades 
a frightening, horrifying character that who's described in excruciatingly terrifying detail. So much so that I was listening to it on on the audiobook, and I wanted to stop listening, but I was I couldn't because it was so well so well written and so compelling and so interesting and so different. I've never read anything like this, not in a very long time. And then he continues this trope where he where the main character is basically following Dante's journey down into the deepest pits of hell. I'm not going to give you a lot of a lot of the um, I'm not going to give you anything about the plot because I really think you should read the series, but. It reminds you of why the Inferno, uh, uh, Purgatorio, and Paradiso were so powerful because it was it was a fantasy version of an entire society's way of looking at the world, of dealing with not merely the material reality, but the reality of the immaterial as well. And this book, surprisingly deals with some really profound, really unexpectedly heady stuff. And I couldn't, I just couldn't tear myself away from it. The ending is shockingly good. It's shockingly good. I, I just, I didn't know what to do with it. I have no idea what happened really. Um, but that's what makes it so good. It's just abstract enough. It's just bizarre enough. It's just compelling enough for me to just wish that Christopher gets to the end of it much more quickly. Now, um, I know that some of you uh, had questions about s- some of the choices that he made. So if Tim is here watching, Tim, now is the time to start asking your questions about, about the ending of it. But I just wanted to m- mention one or two things that I really thought was interesting about Christopher's vision of the far future. If you think about Dune, right? Dune is a world that is as far removed from contemporary reality from our lived experience of the world with all of its history going all the way back to the classics as you possibly can imagine it's a world that has no connection at all with the religions of the old days no connection at all with the literature literature of the old days it's a place that is so far removed into the future that any memory of earth is completely wiped out that's dune right but in this series, what's so fascinating is that be- maybe because it's based on the Roman Empire, that this empire that, that runs everything is based on the Romans, but there is a lived memory of English as an ancient language. They quote Shakespeare 10,000 years into the future. They quote the classics. They quote Marcus Aurelius. There is a memory of Christianity, however fragmented it is. There is a definite memory of the classics as they were thousands of years with, with reference to us, how many more tens of thousands of years with reference to the people in, uh, playing out in the story. I thought this was an absolutely brilliant touch. I'll explain why. Um, <laughs> Tim is frustratingly has hands full literally with things and I'm unable to ask specific questions at this time. Well, I'm going to be here for a little bit more. So um, unfree your hands, Tim, and ask me your questions if you have a chance. <laughs> um, but what I wanted to say about this familiarity of the universe of this these books it makes sense to me i think it's much more realistic that ten thousand years into the future assuming that we do end up conquering uh, the galaxy and living out in hundreds in hundreds of different planets that we would have a lived memory of those classics that informed earth culture those things take a long time to go away and they really don't ever go away there's no reason for them to. 
This is what our society is built on. And I think the fact of that memory, the fact of, of, of those names still being real, of people still speaking classical English as an ancient language, that's much more realistic than a lot of this far future stuff that is written nowadays that, that pretends like modern, that far future humans are going to be so advanced that they're not going to have any need for that old culture, that degenerate culture that believed in gods and in superstition and in fate. Balderdash, I don't think so. I don't think that's true. And I think the fact that the mere fact that we tell the same fairy tales that we have that we have for six, seven thousand years, that some of the fairy tale plots that we have still today are the same as they were way back then. There's a lot of a lot of scholarship that confirms this right now. Plus the fact that certain storytelling tropes tend to act on the physical brain in ways that are that activate very, very deep subconscious parts of the brain that can actually be seen on, on brain scans. I've talked about this before in some of my lectures that I've done. That, that in particular, there was this one study done by Emory University where they had students reading trashy pulp novels. But trashy pulp novels always use specific structures, uh, storytelling structures that go back all the way to Aristotle. That's why, they, that's why they're popular. It's because Aristotle figured out what kind of structure is compelling to the human being. And now neuroscientists are recognizing that those story structures have deep resonances in the physical brain of the human being. Now, whether that has been put there at the very beginning or as a result of, you know, millennia of telling the same story so much that we start passing on that receptivity from generation to generation almost doesn't matter anymore because the point is that we are receptive to that to the stories and those stories make us light up in ways that are um, far more profound and powerful than something like the last Jedi, which does nothing more than just subvert things without providing us with a redeeming arc you know what i'm saying and so this is why i think that it's so interesting that christopher decided to make this choice for his series of novels because I think it's much more realistic when it comes to human nature to think that the classics are still going, that the fairy tales that we've been told are still going to be told 10, 20,000 years into the future. And I think, I think that was a fantastic um, choice that he made as a writer. Um, and I'm going to ask him about it. I'll tell you, tell you why in a, in a bit, but um, without going too far ahead. Uh, Seraphim is saying Pyramus and Thisbe to Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Yes, Pyramus and Thisbe, I love very much, but yes, it is not exactly Romeo and Juliet. He had to establish eternity in the heart. Absolutely, yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, I'm going to say that those storytelling structures are somehow intrinsic to us and were, were placed in us by a creator. That's the way I see the world. But even if you're the kind of person that sees this as a sort of uh, stamp of evolution over thousands of years, that doesn't change the fact that we as human beings tend to respond to the same kinds of storytelling structures, to the same kinds of fairy tales, to the same kinds of truths. Um, and truths don't tend to change very much from millennium to millennium, as odd as that may seem. It should be the opposite. It, they should change a lot. Um, so Tim asks, good, Tim is asking things. Excellent. If you could elaborate on the ideas the author was grappling with in terms of the nature of humanity and human nature, given the descent, both Hadrian's and the Inferno arc, and also if you can somehow without spoilers discuss resurrection there. Yeah. So <laughs> Tim, I don't know how I can discuss without spoilers the idea of resurrection, except to say that um, what I think Christopher is doing is suggesting 
is, is something that Gene Wolfe did very interestingly in The Earth of the New Sun, which is the coda to the Book of the New Sun. Um, not, the, not his best work, but certainly an interesting one. And that is to provide a possible scientific explanation for supernatural reality. Now, by saying that, it sounds like I might be... I don't want to say that what he's doing is reducing the reality of the metaphysical to the merely um, illusory or phantasmagorical. What I'm suggesting is that he is, Christopher seems to be trying to express scientifically or empirically a reality that is trans-empirical, that is supra-empirical, that is metaphysical. This is something that Jordan Peterson is constantly trying to do, by the way. Jordan Peterson is often rubbing up against the reality of the metaphysical more and more in his later uh, discussions and his later conversations and, and, um, and lectures. But he always says, and this is something that he says, not that I say, he says that he uses ration, rationalism, rationality as the ultimate sharpener for the blade of his mind. So as far as he's concerned, he needs to have at least some plausible explanation for the reality of the metaphysical that won't reduce the metaphysical to the physical which is an interesting difference from some of the new atheists and the and their ilk who are completely content to reduce the the possibility of the supernatural to nothing more than delusion right so this is something new this is something different and i think that's what christopher is doing um yes hyperion uh, Chris, uh seraphim you're saying hyperion goes to such places absolutely hyperion i don't like now, I didn't read, I only read book one of Hyperion, and I read kind of a, a, a summary of the book, of book two because I didn't, I didn't like where it was going. It was a little bit too dark for me. And the way that, from what I could tell, I didn't read book two, so I might be wrong about this. But I, in Hyperion, the way that the Catholic Church uh, assumes the symbiotic, the, the symbiote, the cross-shaped symbiote into its... Um, into its mystical um, ecclesiastical life is to me profoundly disturbing. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> and we can talk about that in, in, a, in a, at a different time in a different video. It's not really what we're talking about here, but you're right, Seraphim, in the sense that Hyperion tries to do that, tries to, tries to allow for the possibility of the metaphysical to be expressed through the language of the purely empirical. So that's something that Christopher, I think is trying to do with his resurrection scene. I'm not going to give any more than that. It's not really a spoiler. Um, Julian May's Pilly Pilly, you've seen Saga does too. Aha, I'll have to check that out. Thanks, Erfim. Um, Tim also wanted me to elaborate on the ideas the author was grappling with in terms of the nature of humanity and human nature given the descent. So this is the, the, the question that all science fiction is trying to ask. At what point do we stop being human? If there's a technology that can allow us to take our personality or our personhood outside of our first body, and I use that term specifically, and then transmute it to a, either a different body or to a machine consciousness, is that still us or is it something else? I'm not sure that Christopher answers that question in, in this book. Um, I think he suggests that the break between initial, between first death and second resurrection, there's, I think he suggests that there's such a wide gulf between one and the other that the creature that comes out at the other end is not really human anymore. There is a character in this, and I'm not, this wouldn't be giving away anything to say if I say this, there's a character who's like 20,000 years old who keeps himself alive by some unknown method of transferring his consciousness from one cloned body to another. 
a profoundly dark character, not a not a positive character by any stretch of the imagination. He does help our char- our main character in some ways, but really he is either uh, he he probably is an analog for for the devil in the lowest circle of of uh, of the inferno. That's my impression. So I'm not sure if Christopher in this book is suggesting that if you lose that connection with your primary, with your first humanity, you are going towards the descent that will eventually make you either into, into a machine, which is much worse than human, or uh, rather a, an AI that, pre- that pretends to be human, or a human that transmutes or transfers or something consciousness, consciousness into an ever existing combination of machine and human. Um, certainly he doesn't make the argument. I don't think that Khan Sagaro, this character that we're talking about, Khan Sagaro, uh, is human. We're constantly rubbing up against the reality that as human as he may have been, he's left all that behind. And what's interesting is that he has nothing left other than self-interest. That's it. That's the only thing that drives him. So it seems like the more that you go away from the first humanity, from, from who you are at creation or whatever, or at birth, the less connection you have with that original humanity, the more and more you're going to become non-human, more machine-like. Of course, there is some ir- irony here, and this is going to be minor, ty- a minor little spoiler, that it seems like the machine intelligence is running a lot of the action in book two. But we're not entirely sure because there is this mysterious alien presence that may or may not be there, may or may not be providentially running everything. And I'm going to hold off on my full analysis of where this is going until this, the series continues and hopefully ultimately finishes. I know nowadays it's kind of kind of have to hold your breath. It's not entirely guaranteed that any series um, is ever going to be finished, what with the, the traditional publishing being the way it is. But um, uh, Tim, I hope that that begins to answer your questions. The th- I'm really interested to see Tim. This is for you specifically. I'm really really interested to see what the uh, the whiter than white piece of shell is meant to represent. Uh, those of you, this isn't really a spoiler, but my immediate my immediate thought, and this is specifically for Tim, is that there's a lot of um, mythology that associates the creation of the world with the um, breaking of an egg egg imagery is, is very often used in cosmic mythology in in, uh, in mythologies having to do with the creation of the cosmos certainly in slavic cosmology the egg is a symbol of life death and resurrection it's one of the reasons by the way why uh, the eggs are so often used in eastern traditions in, in russian orthodoxy because it's one of those uh, pagan traditions that has been sanctified um, because there is a very clear and very deep profound attachment to the image of and the symbol of the egg as a symbol for life and death. So I'm curious to see if that's where Christopher's going to go with this. I'm not entirely sure where he's going to go with it, but I'm certainly excited about, about this series very much. Now I'm so excited that I did something that was unexpected and um, sort of uh, not something I normally do. And I reached out to Christopher directly um, to the author and Asked him if he'd like to come and uh, be interviewed on one of my uh, as part of my author interview series, and Christopher was gracious and he said yes. So um, it looks like January tenth, uh, we are going to be uh, meeting in virtual person, so to speak, with Christopher Rocchio, the author of the Sun Eater series, where I'm going to be peppering him with annoying and awkward questions about his series and about his writing process. 
So J January 10th, write it down. We're going to be uh, delving deep, I hope, into his wonderful uh, series. And maybe we can um, address some of the thematic stuff as well for Tim and for me. Um, in any case, if you have a slightly squeamish stomach, I'm not sure I can recommend Howling Dark to you. It's very dark. It goes deep into some of the more difficult um, aspects of human experience. Uh, it's it's dark. It's very dark. It, it looks at what you know what happens when you gain the world and lose your soul, like Seraphim says. It's it go. It's very honest about the human condition in in the wild reaches of the dark cosmos. It's dark stuff. Um, it's disturbing in a lot of places. But it's fascinating. It's wonderfully written. The language is beautiful. The main character is compelling. I really love where the story is going. I'm really excited to see where it goes. I love the fact that he successfully does homage to the classics without copying them and that he doesn't trample on the masters. No, he reads the masters. He knows the masters. He writes his story based on the structure of the masters he cites the masters and he lets those of us who have read the masters give, he gives us little Easter eggs to let us know that this is exactly, that he knows exactly what he's doing and, and that he's telling a story that is meaningful and not merely escapist. And I'm very grateful to him for it. And I'm very glad that I'm reading it. And I hope you all will as well. The first book is called uh, empire of silence. And the second book is called howling dark. And it looks like by next summer, book three is going to be out and I hope, Christopher, if you're watching this uh, in, in live or uh, afterwards, I hope, I please hope that you finish this series and you don't get uh, get thrown under the bus by the traditional publishing world. Because that would be really, really, really sad. Um, so, Tim, I'm going to give you one more thing about resurrection. And this is going to be the following. Is it resurrection if it's merely time manipulation? So it's like it's like um, the doctor, right? If the doctor is a time lord and he can insert himself in different timelines, if that were possible, if there was no such thing as nodes in time that cannot be changed, if you had the possibility of choosing a parallel timeline, inserting yourself from one where you die and sticking yourself slightly earlier in another one where you don't, is that resurrection or is that just merely advanced technology? Um, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out later uh, when this whole underlying mystery about who the quiet are gets resolved. And hopefully you resolve it, Christopher, uh, because I don't like a mystery that is not answered. Uh, the lo Lost, the TV show, was a terrible, terrible, terrible disappointment to us all. So I think that's enough for today. I'm almost, I've almost lost my voice completely. Um, Hopefully, uh, you are all excited enough to go and buy those books by Christopher Rocky right now and put down in your um, in your calendars January 10th in the evening. That's a Friday. We are going to be live discussing with uh, Christopher himself the wild and wonderful world of his novels. And I'm personally very excited about it. I hope um, if you have a chance to read a little bit beforehand that you will as well. Anyway, if, there's an, if there aren't any more questions, I'm going to be signing off. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at 
nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud. <laughs>